back to another episode of the Art vs. Commerce podcast. Uh, this week, we have filmmaker, documentary filmmaker who made uh, Psalm 1 and 2, both on Netflix, Jason Wise. Um, before I get into discussing that, just want to say it has been a minute, and it's so good to be back. I spent the summer going on a bunch of different projects, traveling all over, and um, it's just hard to keep up with, but it's... Uh, you know, it's been great hearing people reach out, hearing people talk about the show with me, and I know that um, it's just cool that to make something that's starting conversations, and like I mentioned in previous podcasts, you know, I think there's always going to be these moments where I might it might go away, and then it comes back, and it's always when there's the opportunity, um, I'm always going to take it, and so it's nice to be back in New York City for the fall, and it's nice to have another episode, and uh, I really think the this conversation with Jason was fantastic and and that's all on him um i think you know his his ability to discuss his own process and what he went through both just coming up in general as a filmmaker you know wanting to start out in scripted work and then moving over into documentary uh, in a way that wasn't exactly planned but obviously created such awesome success um is fantastic and and the way that he discusses um how he managed to get it into the Napa Film Festival and then get distribution. You know, I think it's great when we can have this kind of retrospective on 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 projects that are very successful, knowing that in the moment, you know, they were getting rejected and they were being turned down and you needed someone like Jason to have faith in it and to keep pushing. And I think it's really important for all of us to hear these kind of stories because, you know, uh, until until it gets vindicated, you you run you run the risk of feeling like maybe you're crazy, um, believing in something. And so to hear his his really you know he he tells the story so well, and it was you know, uh, I appreciate um you know his honesty his honesty in it because I think that you know sometimes people aren't that comfortable talking about how the sausage is made, especially when it's you know a near and dear project. And, um, so I, I can't thank him enough for that. And it's also, we re- we recorded this, uh, on his home turf in LA when I was out there for a shoot over the summer. So it's been a few months. So I appreciate your patience while I, uh, waited to put it out, but, uh, you know, here we are another episode. Um, it's good to be back. And as always, thanks for being here. I very much wanted to get into nature documentaries. Nature. Which sounds strange, but that, but my background actually, especially in film school and everything else, was narrative work. So I never really intended to do documentaries. It was never an intention. It kind of came about from a combination of they were, they're not necessarily cheaper, I guess. They end up being cheaper because you don't pay yourself, but they were more accessible and it was, you know, the, the kind of the stories are just sort of out there in the wild and so I sort of gravitated towards that and some was a combination of me finding it and it finding me so but you when know. you when you first went to you went to film school yeah I did and you were with total intention of doing scripted absolutely no absolutely at what and like when you got out of college what were you going for what so was, what was on your, your uh, view well I'd made this uh, senior thesis film that took place in World War two and the present day and it had to do with the the end of the concentration camps and the Russians are coming. It's a pretty ambitious little thing. And it, and it did very well. And so it kind of started off... Uh, scripted. Yeah, it was all scripted. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, actors and everything. And so I was hired by Cisco Systems based on this, which is a strange combination, to document 
their relief efforts after Hurricane Katrina in the Gulf. So I went down to New Orleans and Mississippi, Gulfport, Mississippi, and filmed a documentary, an objective one, the best objective one possible being hired by a huge company, on their rebuilding schools. And, and was so, it like a feature-length thing? or No, it was more of an internal documentary. Like branded content stuff. Exactly. exactly. And what, what year was this? That would have been, when was Katrina? It would have been like the year, yeah, so it would have been 05, 06. Okay. In that area. Cool. So over the course of that time. Yeah. And I, but I, what, what that did is it really made me realize kind of how much I enjoyed interviewing people, but how much I I wanted to kind of manipulate the documentary form. I think that documentary, I think, has changed enormously in 10 years. Enormously. You know. Because of the different camera? Well, that's, the, yeah, technically, but I think even more so that it's just more available. I mean, if you look at like what Netflix has done, it's put documentaries right in everybody's hands. And now everybody kind of, I think we're starting to get to a point where people don't think of them only as educational. You know, I mean, when King of Kong came out, I will never forget this film. I will never forget it. So King of Kong came out, and it was this movie that was a documentary, but yet it wasn't about Pickett's Charge and the Civil War. It wasn't about some famous, you know, songwriter. It was just good guys, bad guys, video game world, and it was hilarious. And it was a narrative structure of a through line. And the only film that I had seen that had done that was Pumping Iron which Pumping Iron was my greatest influence to some, hands down. Cool. And so, you know, these were these are like the two documentaries I idolized outside of some, you know, Philip, Philip, Moore, or Philip Morris kind of stuff, or Earl Morris kind of stuff. And when, you know, using very studio B-roll to cover interviews, which Earl Morris did. Yeah. Um, I think it was like... It's that hybrid. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's... It, I think that has finally started to become a thing that people... Well, I think, yeah, like like the notion, I remember it, as a kid, documentary immediately meant ugly, but important. Yeah, that's cool. And, and now, you know, the, the visual aspects, people can watch a documentary because it's beautiful, right. which was never really on the cards, you know, um, 10, mm. 15 years ago and beyond that. Yeah, and I think, you, I, I think, like, in the seminal realm, I think Planet Earth coming out, Totally. Made, I mean, you had regular households in America watching a nature documentary in their living room week by week by week, and it had huge ratings. And March of the Penguins came out. So you had this weird combination of a nature documentary for a moment was the highest grossing documentary in history about penguins. And I think all of these kind of things coming together and then Netflix coming together where they just have so much content, I think it really, really, really pushed the documentary to the forefront. I, I never really... I never really saw a difference between narratives and documentaries in the way that... In what ways, though? Because, of course, you did, in, like, from a genre perspective. Yeah, definitely. But I think, as a director, you're completely manipulating reality either way. True, yes. And in my, in my personal opinion, whether I'm shooting a documentary on wine or I'm shooting a documentary on, you know, I have one about an actor or a performer coming up soon, and both of those, I don't, if, I don't really think of them very different. You know, it's just what tools do you have? So... Whether you're writing a script or that script exists in the editing, to me, it's it's total kind of BS. You're totally well, changing yeah, no, the reality. The second that you make one cut, right? You're you're altering perspective. Even mm -hmm. even before that, just you you can get you can get you know finicky and detailed about it, but just the angle that the camera's looking at is already influencing. Yeah, there's things outside the frame that you don't see. Right, exactly. And therefore, it's being altered from like perception. Yeah. Well, I think I think with narratives. 
you're trying, and this is not all narratives, but most, and especially the ones I've, done, I've worked on, you're trying very hard to find some spontaneity. You're really trying to make things look spontaneous, and you're trying to look for some things that happen that change the way you're shooting it, change the way you're doing it, and make the film better. In a documentary, you're looking for the opposite. You're looking for some structure. Yeah. So everything's spontaneous, and you're looking for some structure, but I mean, to be very honest, in the responsibility when you make either one of these films mm. is I still think the same. Mm. I mean, I truly believe the most important thing you should do as a filmmaker, even if it is branded content or a narrative documentary goes to theaters or a narrative feature, is to entertain people. I, I believe this through and through. I don't care if it's a very deeply political documentary well, or something. Well, it's the only way it's going to have legs. Right, exactly. And like at that point, you're, you're not serving your own... Let's say that you are doing something that's supposed to be important for political reasons or for health reasons, whatever. If, if you're saying to damn with the entertainment because it needs to just have the information, then you're not even, you're, the message that you want to get across isn't going to travel as far. Absolutely. So you're, you're damning yourself in that, in that point. So you, you did this, this um, branded content for, which company was it? Cisco, Cisco System? Systems, yeah. So did, uh, how did that experience go? Great. It was phenomenal. It you know, my, my story with, it, has to, it goes back oddly to when I made this, this film 90, which is this World War II film. That was a thesis in school. It was my thesis in school. Mm -hmm. But it did, I mean, it really, really kind of, from a short film perspective, it really kind of exploded at film festivals and did really, really well. That's and, great. Yeah, it was awesome. It's obviously super encouraging. It, great. I mean, and I had period, period military vehicles in the thing. And I had, I mean, it was a wild, ambitious film. And it cost me, I made it for three grand, shot the whole thing on film. It was incredibly crazy. What school were you at? I went to Chapman University cool. yep. in Orange County. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, but, I mean, the next budget in my class was like 12000 And they were all high school angst films. And, you know, what I mean, they were very different from what I was doing. And so I was told by my school, don't do this. It's a good script. But don't set yourself up for failure and do something that's such a period piece. So, anyways, I didn't have $3,000. It was an enormous amount of money to me at that point. Yeah, you were in school. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but I don't know if these other kids, their parents had money and stuff. I'm just like... Especially I, in Orange County. Yeah, man, I spent my whole time so angry at film school going, how in the hell... Do these people get so much money? But, <laughs> but truthfully, when you don't have money, you find you get restrictions equal yeah. creative paths. Yeah, exactly. So, a, a guy I met this guy who was a friend of one of the actors in the film, and he had some money. You know, he's not like a really rich guy or anything like that. And I went to him and I said, "Look, here's a few. I couldn't get most of my film developed." And I said, "Here is because I had some money and then it fell through, and you know." Yeah. And I said, "Here's some footage I've shot." And he looked at his wife. He said, "Yeah, we should. We'll, we'll pay for this." I said, you'll pay for this? He said, how much do you need? I told him, 2000 He goes, all right, we'll give you three. He just knew right away I was, you know, underbidding myself. And that's the guy who was in charge of the Cisco Systems thing. So uh -huh. I made this thing, and he called me up. He said, can you document this? And I really owe a lot of my career to this guy. In fact, he's an executive producer on both my... It's funny things. how in the beginning it's like there's this one person that, yeah. that gave you a chance based on, uh, on nothing. Yeah, his name is Bill Fowler. I owe him enormously and always will. Cool. Yeah. But, I mean, he's also a guy... Well, I mean, that's just how this, that's how this goes. And there's always this strange question, and obviously I'm at the beginning of my career, but when you get further along, people go, how did you do this? And there's, I, that, that is a very tough thing to answer for people who have figured out how to do it, you know? No, I know, especially, it's funny, because they're like, how'd you get that job? And I'm like, well, I could tell you, like, the person who gave it to me literally, but then it's like the person that I met them through, who I met them through, who I met them through, and the project that I was on three right. years ago. Right. I'm like, you know, if you want, it's a tangled web. I was born. Yeah, <laughs> It right. goes all the way back. Yeah. Um, yeah, no backup plan. That's how you get to do this. You just had no backup plan. I mean, for that's me, true. you have no backup plan whatsoever. And that's and like how it, you... 
I almost think having that type of mentality would ruin it anyway. It yeah. wasn't even that I didn't have a backup plan. I was like, no, I'm going to do this. And if one thing doesn't work out, then I'm just going to go until I find the thing that works out. Right. And you kind of just go from thing to thing that works out. And the things that fail along the way, like, don't even really register. They can't. Otherwise, right. you can't last. Right. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, you do the Cisco system thing. Was there anything about that with having a corporate client that bothered you in terms of the way that they might have meddled in anything? Did, it, did you get jaded by the commercial aspects at all? No, because the good thing going into that was it was sort of their... They gave me a lot of freedom to make something, but they also... That's cool. There were an enormous amount of cooks, inevitably. You know, and so I kind there of... Were. the Yeah, oh yeah. I mean, it's a huge company. That's what I'm so saying. Did that, they did that project it? managers and this and that. And so I would say I was young. I was so young that I didn't know to be frustrated by it. Right, because you were what, sense. 23, 22? Oh, yeah, 20, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the good thing about that was I didn't really, I didn't really have the, I was just very excited to be getting. You just accepted whatever some, was thrown at you. Yeah, to get a decent budget to do this stuff. And I mean, for the most part, it was mostly messaging. They weren't really saying, do it this way. They were just saying, you know, it's important for, you know, they just had, when any corporate, comp, any large company has a strange template of the way things have to look and feel and stuff like that, but the content they didn't really influence. Does that make any sense? Yes. How it was presented mattered, but what well, was no, it? Okay, it yeah, you deal with things like like there needs to be a certain amount of our color in the in yeah. the, in, in the imagery, and when yeah. you color grade it, like if you can have our hue, like, right, right. They do. You know, they, they there's do that stuff, stuff like that. They do yeah. that stuff. Yeah. Um, so when once that finished, what happened? So once that finished, I. God, once that finished, what the hell did I do? Well, because you were thinking about doing scripted, obviously. Documentary wasn't even on your radar, and then you right. do this. Were you having well, epiphany-type right. things, like, what if I do more of these documentary stuff, and I kind of leave the scripted stuff behind? Or was it not really thinking about it in terms of forging a path down a road that left the other one on the wayside? You know, I went to Central America, and this was right... Uh, there were two trips, one before this and one after. And For vacation? Well, one was for school and one was for a, and it's going to sound ridiculous, but I went down there to try to, I thought in my young naivety that I could rediscover or at least help find, or find someone who knew where this extinct species of toad was. An extinct species I know this of is, toad? I know this sounds wild, but... But where did that come from? All right, so but this... So this came from, I've always been into animals and, you know. Right, you were saying a, you wanted to nature documentaries. I have a pet praying, or a pet orchid mantis over there. The, um, so, I mean, I'm kind of, I've always, you know, when I lived in Ohio, I grew up with, a, you know, several rooms in my basement filled with alligators and snakes, and I bred snakes and lizards. I mean, I'm not, you know, it's amazing I found a wife that would marry me kind of thing. <laughs> the, um, so I've always been into this stuff. And, in fact, the film I have coming up is about animals, and, cool. and food and stuff like that. So there's a lot of underwater photography. So I mean, it's kind of, Dope. I've been moving my way back towards this stuff for quite a while. But I was trying to rediscover this frog. I know this sounds asinine, but at the time no, no, it no. sounded completely rational to me. So I took this video camera down there and I would film everything I could and film with people and do everything. Mm -hmm. And I think the process of figuring out that A, this, this frog is totally gone, but B, kind of this detective work of going, okay, you gotta go talk over to this guy. You gotta talk to this person. And I'd find people that like, I'd find a guy who had a tourism business and they would take people to see these golden toads in the rainforest. And when they went extinct, his business kinda, you know, took a different path. And I found like real human stories connected to this animal. And I got home and didn't really realize that I had filmed 
a portion of what could have been a very good documentary. But I wasn't trying to do that. I was just trying to figure out where this thing was. And I think I owe more to that experience of wanting to be a documentary filmmaker than anything else I had done. And that was because it taught me how fun it is to connect the strange dots Mm. that you can't plan for. Mm. And I had an enormously fun time trying to figure out how do I present this strange little animal with human stories? You know, and that was like, that was kind of my goal. And it, so anyways, I got back and then I tried to film a documentary on a cave snail that went extinct. And I, to, the, to this moment, it's my biggest regret that I never finished this film. Because Why I went, didn't you? Well, oh, I, I should have. I don't, my, I ended up needing to get a job desperately. Yeah. Well, because I was going to say, obviously, the show, the podcast, Start Versus Commerce, like, you're, you're, you have success at school. Mm-hmm which leads to a corporate documentary job, which is obviously well-funded. Yes, very. And that could give you a taste of like, oh, if I stay in this corporate doc world, I'm going to make a lot of money and I'm young and that's exciting. And but I could have and I didn't. What pushed you? Like, I didn't want to, I just don't, I've had many opportunities to do corporate stuff and even, you know, trying to stay on track here, but even with like the wine stuff, I've had many opportunities to go and then film content for wineries around the world and stuff mm-hmm. like that and mostly commercial stuff and I just don't want to do it. It's, yeah. it's not... Uh, you know, it's not, I, I don't know if it's something I would do well, but I certainly, it's not something I'm incredibly passionate about. It's different thing you're doing, yeah. Very. It's How like directing you... commercials or directing music videos or directing anything that's a, 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 a place. You have to work hard to get in that place and then it's hard to get out of that place. And so that's why I have not pulled the film out of the camera on being a feature film director because right now I'm living in a space that is very reckless and dangerous, but very, very exhilarating and fun. I mean, I travel all over the world. I barely pay myself. But I get to make stuff that at least, uh, at the end of the day, I can say, you know, I threw everything I had at this project. I had mm-hmm. nothing left. I threw yeah. 150%. So, Well, these type, those types of huge documentaries were, I mean, what was your total hour count? On, 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 on Psalm 2. I, on Psalm 2, I could have done a... Was it over mm, 200 hours? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I could have done a nine-hour planet earth of wine yeah seriously <laughs> i mean that I, I so this so just really quick that snail thing i went to missouri in the ozarks because there's this tiny grain of sand sized snail and it lives in one cave one tiny cave in the ozarks and there's a guy who's dedicated his life to trying to save this you know i think most people think meaningless animal so i thought what an amazing story so i went down there and i got deep into the biology did a lot of great interviews filmed a lot of stuff but i i Realized that wasn't the real film. The real film was the town. The no, the real film was the town. Yeah, yeah. You had this wild town down in the middle of the Ozarks that was surrounded by some of the best and worst people and, and great slice of humanity and Americana. And I should have, I should have filmed more with them. Hmm. And I got back and realized I got to go back there. And I just, I, I couldn't, I didn't finish it, but I also let that fuel me deeply and said, I'm never going to make a film and not be open to what the real story is again. That's true. I mean, because you go into documentaries and like you're presented with what it, where it needs to change and sometimes you can be like, not stubborn, but it's like, oh, if I open up this can of worms, how deep is it going to go? And like you either, yeah. you need to be open to that. How are you supporting yourself at this time? Because what, mid-20s, just like kind of following your nose in terms of like interesting stories? I was bartending. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So I was bartending at this time. And then I got a job as a preschool teacher. Okay. So this so kind you, of you like were not. No, like I wouldn't take film. it. No, I wouldn't take it. I didn't 
The problem I found is the more jobs I took that were, can you film this for me? Can you do this for my company? Can you do this for, I felt farther away from my goal. Hmm. The more I did it, the more I felt like the, what I actually want to do is impossible. Because what, what, get, what, what was your goal? What, what was the goal in the mind? I mean, my goal was, at, at that time, my goal was to make my first feature film. I was obsessed. I, and that I, was scripted or doc? I didn't care. Honestly. Did you have something care. in your mind? Yes. What it was? So what I wanted to make, and th th so the combination of the frog thing and the stale thing pushed me to realize I did, I, I now realize that a documentary was what I wanted to make. That was how it kind of got to, I'm going to do narratives, narratives are going to happen, but what I need to do is make something Make mistakes on it, figure it out. It's more accessible. Very, very. For sure. But I don't, think, I don't think easier is the right term. No, no, no. Accessible yeah. is not accessible. easy. Yeah. <laughs> so I started, I'm, a, I'm pretty, obs I, World War I is something I'm pretty obsessed about. And I always wanted to figure out how could I make something that involved World War I. I knew the best films, especially documentaries, are about something that are about something that are about something. Mm -hmm. So like if you see... If you see a film like Pumping Iron, you're like, oh, well, it's a film about bodybuilders. But then you watch it, it's not about that at all. It's about crazy people, but no, it's about insane ambition. You and just now, described some. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, that's, I mean, <laughs> Pumping Iron was my biggest influence on some by far. And so I, uh, I wanted, you know, so I realized I have to find a way to put, to make a film about something that tricks people. So I wanted to make something about World War I, and I realized, okay, well, they fought most of the battles through Champagne. And so I thought, what a great Trojan horse for World War I. I'll make a film set as a documentary about winemakers and that world in Champagne during the time. Because, I mean, you literally have this most, one of the most idyllic places. Did you have, uh, like, a deep interest in wine at the time? Not particularly. I mean, I sold it like, as a bartender. Oh, yeah, right. But no. I you weren't, say, like, a wino. You, no, no, no. You no. didn't grow up, like, knowing all the things? No, not at all. In fact, my house, I mean, I come from Cleveland, Pro which is a beer town. That probably <laughs> makes you better suited, actually. Because you can come yeah. at it from a layman's mindset. Like, you know how to, you know what people needed to understand versus being someone on the inside. Yeah, I think that's true with any kind of a film that's about something overwhelming, like wine is. Yeah, people get, people yeah. get overwhelmed. For and time. I was very, I mean, when, we, when I made some, I was very, very, very serious about approaching it as not an insider, you know? As to try to say, as the try, you know, because there's so many. It's opinions such an in wine. inside baseball industry that, like, to you know. You wouldn't. I thought there were opinions in about film, and about this and about that. There is. I have found nothing that compares to the amount of disagreeing opinions and conflicting stuff. Well, wine is. I mean, it's so infuriating, and people have no memory. I mean, they have no memory in wine. You ha you find all these people who are so obsessed with what champagne is hot right now. What little producer in, you know, the island of Corsica is making some rosé and it's really this and that. It's all a lot of hipster kind of stuff, but nobody knows, and I don't mean nobody, there are a lot of sommeliers who are very brilliant with their history, but I mean, as a majority, wine drinkers don't think that 75 years ago or less, 50 years ago, Champagne was one of the sweetest wines in the world. And so was Barolo. And so was all these other wines. And they, they just don't, they don't really get into the nuts and bolts of how it came about and how things connect. And to me, history is always the most fascinating thing about a subject, if you can tell mm -hmm. it in a non-dry fashion. Mm -hmm. And so... So, I mean, it was like, because what... It's funny, excuse me. It was funny that what, what brought you to 
well, so line was was a was a story about history and was something war, else yeah. entirely. Yeah. Yeah. And so I, try, I was trying to make this film, and I had oh, so I directed. I forgot I left this out. I directed um, about two seasons of a PBS travel show. I forgot that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that I mean, but that 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 probably got your chops going for yeah. We traveled for, the world. For travel and yeah. like understanding oh, yeah. what that's about. Filmed, I mean, up, I shoot filmed for, all over the world. Yeah. Yeah, and doing that type of production is really... See, because this is where I was going to say, not, not necessarily doesn't have to be commercial work, but it, like working for other people, so that working on things that aren't your baby, right. and there's someone else's that you get to learn from. I mean, what's nice is that it was PBS travel show, so it was still... Which one was it? It was called, actually, it was a, it was so, <laughs> it was a, a project that was kind of self-funded by the host, and it aired in Orange County. It was called Escape Seeker. Mm. And it, I don't know that it ever aired nationally. No, it definitely it was did a not. local PBS. Yeah, but it had. The, I mean, hey, if it had budget to get you all over the world. It, you know, we didn't. I won't say we really made a lot of money off it, but the experience was incredible. And you know, we filmed in the Vatican. And international and production is a very specific set of skills. It was astounding, and the woman who put it together was one of the greatest connector of dots I've ever met of people. That's what you need. She was phenomenal. And so, you know, we had the chance to shoot sharks in Fiji and all. I mean, I shot underwater all over the world, Easter Island, you know, and that's, uh, an under, as an underwater photographer, is kind of how I, it's, it's early in my career I started shooting underwater. So mm -hmm. it's kind of, a, it, was, it was a great marriage of chaos on the ground, you know, a lot of no planning, walking into rooms, you have no idea what you're going to see. And so it kind of, it really prepared me for Tom and the rest of the stuff that came afterwards very well. So that is what I did after I taught preschool. So I taught preschool and then directed this, these two seasons of this show. How do you go from being a preschool teacher to someone giving you the opportunity to direct a show like that? It was that? the greatest job I ever had teaching preschool. It was great. You know, there's, the, the thing I think a lot of filmmakers forget is how important it is to do weird shit. <laughs> and like the more weird shit you do, the greater your filmmaking is going to be. I mean, you got to have a point of view. Yeah. You're not going to get it from talking to strictly filmmakers. All yeah, time. I worked at a summer camp in Cleveland as like the nature director, and so I have had, I have had so much fun. And little kids, they take everything at an innocence and face value that adults just you know they'll get disgustingly dirty. They'll pick up worms. They'll do things that like adults would have all these notions when they would be asked to do these things. Kids, they just come in with a clean slate. So I really love doing that kind of stuff with kids. And I taught again, or I did a camp again in California because I had done it in Cleveland. And they asked me to stay on. They said, would you do this? And I ended up getting paid quite a bit of money because all the kids, I was crazy. I was the only male there. You know, it was all women and I was the only male and I ran around and, you know, we did treasure hunts and it was nuts. And I loved, I loved this job. It broke my heart to leave it. But the, um, how do you do that? Again, I have no idea. I just ended up in this thing, but I would, lucky. but I would go and shoot, you know, lots of short films that I directed. Because while you're wrote. doing this, obviously you went to film school, you have a f film passion. Like, how are you keeping that alive even while doing other jobs? I, I hope the like I hope the rest of your podcasts are this non sequitur. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, good. So how am I keeping that alive? I so the crew that I work with now, um, we started shooting short films that were ridiculous. You know, we'd write these crazy concepts about like, you know, two guys who go fight to the death to decide where they're gonna take their girlfriends to dinner. And I mean, so we'd have the excuse to make a horribly bloody, blood spraying everywhere samurai fight on the top of mountains. And my wife's father's a helicopter pilot, so we'd shoot aerials for free. We would do all this crazy stuff. And it was kind of like, I just, I have zero fear when it comes to like, you know, yeah, let's shoot something in Japanese, I don't care. I mean, like, there's no like fear 
in that realm, it's when I get into editing that the fear starts. Well, but yeah. the, uh, but but so I mean, I was keeping it alive through doing that kind of stuff, and then every once in a while, I'd get some kind of a gig, you know, go to Mexico and shoot this thing. Like Cisco continued to hire me, I'd go to D.C. and shoot for them, Mexico City and shoot for them continuously. So there were jobs kind of sprinkled here and there and here and there, and they were relatively high paying. Um, but that's that's how. But while I was doing this trying because I, I spent a lot of time in France for this travel show so while I was over there I'm trying to figure out okay how do I do this World War One champagne film and as I'm doing that a server who's a good friend of mine um, I was bartending at a, at a place by Chapman and a server who I met through other servers he worked at Morton Steakhouse is Brian McClintock who's a main character in both my films but he was he was just a server him and I were friends and we would drink in our buddy's garage after we got off work and he said you know I'm doing this this court of master sommeliers training. He was at the very beginning of four levels, so way far away from master. And he's like, you should just come look at this thing. You should watch me do this. And he didn't mean for a film. He just meant it's like the weirdest thing. Hmm. And so I went and watched him blind taste, and my jaw hit the floor. I just couldn't believe it. And it was mainly, you know, the blind tasting thing is cool, being able to figure out what a wine is, but that's not why I was so excited about it. I was so excited because they would stop their blind tasting and give each other so much shit. And they would laugh with each other and they would they would rag on each other. And it was like, I just had never seen wine presented in this kind of macho sports kind of mentality. Well, that's the best part. Like, that's the thing that I find so funny too. Like, even when I, you know, gone to um, Napa, you you think that it's one thing and then you get there and you're like, oh, that's right. These are all blue collar farmers. Right, exactly. Like, these are farmers that get like their hands in the mud every day. This right. is not the, like the nose in the air thing you think it is. Right, exactly. And like constantly having that being flipped on you and showing like, you know, it's a it's a great product. It is. And it's so funny. I mean, you can't get away from that perceived pretension in wine, which it does exist, but you can't get away from it no matter what. When Sam came out, I just remember automatically people were like, God, these pretentious guys. And I'm thinking, this is a guy singing Pearl Jam on a chair, you know, and then he's giving his buddy shit. And they're, they're, they're I mean, they're like slapping each other on the ass like a locker room. It's like totally different. And I'm thinking like... Well, because you're still dealing with people who are like apex. Who yes. want to be like Master Sommelier. I mean, it's my a, God. Oh, my God. How many yeah. are there in the world? 120? Was that, was that the You know, I don't like know. I know. I think it's just over 200 yeah. now, but in history. I mean, so... I, yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I don't know the exact number, but it is radically low considering the tests have been going since 1962. I mean, no, it's, it's incredible. wild. And it's incredibly, it takes a very distinct personality to do yeah. that. So, so, when, so anyways. When, when did, so now you're realizing how cool it is and mm -hmm. how interesting it is and that it's layered and that it's a story about a story about a story. When right. did, when did you, when your I met, mind shift to like, oh, I can actually. When I met Ian. Mm -hmm. So Ian, Brian had met Ian at an exam and he's like, you know, you should meet this guy. So I went up to San Francisco. I drove up there and partied with Ian, essentially. Ian, Brian, and I. I and think, well, these guys probably... They party pretty hard. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, their, their life is knowing about a, an alcohol. Oh, yeah. This film took about 20 years off my life. <laughs> and so, uh, and so, but I partied with Ian, and Ian was, Ian's, as a character, he was just, I just, I'm still in love with him. He's just this ball of nerves, insane ambition, I mean, like, Richter scale intelligent, and he's just got this, like, amazingly, like, second guess twitchiness about him that I feel I have the exact same qualities. You know, his, him and I, I felt like he wanted to be a master sommelier exactly as bad as I wanted to make my first film. And I was like, this guy is me. I want to do this so bad. But 
Brian had my humor. So Brian and I were very, like, we joke around, we memorize movie lines, we're just dicking around, and Ian is my anxiety side. So I felt like if you split those two guys, they were like me. And when I met Ian, I knew the contrast of Ian and Brian is astounding. And then in comes Delin, who they're studying with, who, you know, it was funny, I never even thought of him as a black guy until we finished, and people were like, oh, there's a black guy that drinks wine. It was like the weirdest thing, so I met Delin. <laughs> I never even thought about it until we were in post. And so I met Delin, and I'm like, there's this other guy. He's just such a different He was so calm and collective and confident. I know. Like a boxer. I, I know, yeah. And I just felt like this guy, I mean, he literally just be like, well, I'm the greatest. And I'm like, Jesus Christ. I mean, like, I would never. <laughs> but, you know, some people can wear that, and Delin could wear that. Oh, yeah. And I mean, his style. Yeah. Even the way that he wore the clothes and his, like, the, the double Windsor knot. Yeah. Like a knot, a, a tie knot the size of a fist. Uh, seriously. I mean, like, it was like, he, there was just such greatness. And then Brian had this roommate, Dustin, and they were studying together. And Dustin was to me, all my friends in Ohio. Regular well, yeah. guy, you know, nice, ordinary dude. I mean, all, they're all so intelligent. Well, I think yeah. what, what, what I was thinking about with what you were talking about earlier is that it seems like in the big, in those, those documentaries in the, when you were in your early to mid-20s that you never finished and your regrets about them, it seems like, you know, you, you phrased it as wanting to, that you didn't follow the story, but it seems like in a deeper way, not following the fact that it's not about necessarily the subject, but it's about the people revolving around the subject. Absolutely. And it's like you, those, the mistakes in those earlier things led you to realize that like, yeah, Psalm is about wine, but it's these four people. Mm -hmm. And it's the relationships that they have with each other, who they are as, as individuals. Right. And like really making it a human story. Like I feel like that you were, you tapped into that because things previously like showed you that you needed to do that if it was gonna really work. Definitely, and I don't know that these other films I couldn't have, they were bigger in scope than I were cap and I was capable at the time. Totally. I mean, there's no question. I mean, it's the, hard you know, work, man. Both of those were very deep concepts about animal extinction. And I can tell you right now, I mean, I. I it's Pandora's box of science. Exactly. And my, my ideas for those films were a bookshelf knocked all over the floor. Yeah. And so Psalm was an interesting thing that had this exam that at least provided some structure. But, you know, I can tell you it was at that point, hands down, the hardest thing I'd ever attempted. You know, I mean, it was very, very, very difficult movie to make, and I'm, I'm Some. so glad I made it, yeah. Yeah, Some. well, so, so when you start, what were the ambitions when you started? Just to finish it. I felt like I knew I had a secret with this, because I think anytime the rest of the world discovers insane energy that's going on that they didn't know existed, you have something, mm. meaning like, I mean, look at King of Kong or Pumping Iron or any of this stuff, which now those have entered the canon and everyone knows those exist. But at the time, people were like, holy crap, I had no idea there was even Sub bodybuilding -cultures. competitions. Subculture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the great part about that is I always felt that some, I knew going along it, my wife produced it with me and, and really provided a lot of structure. That's fantastic. We knew that there was, we knew that there was, it was our film to mess up. You know, in the way that, like, if this thing's not good, it was going to be because of us. You know, I felt like the pieces were there. But if it's good, it would also be because of us. Because it's such a crazy, you know, it's a crazy amount of stuff strewn about. You made, you made it coherent. Yeah. As the filmmaker. Yeah. I, yeah I, I, now I guess I can say I agree with you. At the, you know, it took a while for me to, you know. What do you mean? Because a film like that comes about, it's, it's half corralling 
mm -hmm. and then half what you find, and then somehow you sneak in 10% more of complete planning. And so it's, a, it's an interesting film in the way that it had to kind of find a way on its own, and I had to kind of keep that canvas sandwich. So it was a really, it was a really strange film to make in the way that it, you couldn't duplicate that film again. It's the kind of film that I don't no, think no, anybody else could have made. You caught yeah. lightning in a bottle, especially yeah. in terms of this group of four friends and that they're trying to do it and, you know, spoiler alert, some make it, some don't. Yeah, and it's well, like, I mean, we're past that point. Yeah, was, but like, you know, like the fact that all of those things were happening in motion. Um, and how, what was the process like for introducing yourself to the to the world that, that those four were interacting with, like the master sommeliers and the winemakers, like how did you get to a point where everyone respected that you were you were a guy worth giving their time to? I never got that on, never got there on the first film, never. I think- You faked it pretty well, because yeah. you don't like it. Well, there's a number, well, you have to understand, with even within the court, there's many, I would call them cliques, groups of people within, within, the, within the master sommelier community that don't like each other, <clears throat> that feel they're more important, that feel, and I think that's natural in any group of, important people, especially when they're important in their own world. Hmm. I would say there was so much apprehension about me making this film. I, I'm not surprised. I mean, I, I was told no so many times. It's a secret world. I was kicked out of places, even when I was promised to be there. Dealing with the court was not the most fun thing, but I also completely understand everything. You know, I was a first time feature filmmaker, didn't really have any, didn't have any money. I had, you know, it was just, it was a Hail Mary kind of a thing, but at the same time, they could certainly see that I was not going away. Yeah. And, uh... So important. Yeah. And I had a lot of help. I mean, like, Fred Dame, who was on the board at the time, really believed in me. And he really, really, and he's in both films, he really said, look, I, this guy is On the not, Master Sommelier yeah, board. Yeah. And he said, I'm not going to go, he's not well, going to go Like, away. with everything, with every story, you need, you need at least one person to let you in. Uh-huh. Yeah, and I, you know, but it's also... A lot of the winemakers and stuff, I mean, I have not met a nicer, more accommodating, more welcoming group of people than the than winemakers. Winemakers. They're farmers. They are the, they're farmers. And they are the most generous. I mean, they are people who literally. They're salt of the earth. They are salt of the earth. Yeah. And I'm saying like 98 out of 100 of them are yeah. like that. It's oh. crazy. I mean, think about what they do day in, day out. And you know, the weird part about it is you find a lot of, they don't really, especially ones who are decent at their job, they don't compete with each other. They have so, many of them have so much respect for each other even if they don't like each other's style or this or that. It's such a prestige game yeah. that like, if you are in one of those top things, it's something where, you don't once need you to get be angry. into like a, I don't know, to, to be random, to, to, once you get into like top 25, there is no demarcation of one through 25. It's all different flavors, different, different experiences. I, I think you nailed it right and there. And like that kind of takes away this, there, to have a top 25 ranking is ludicrous. And because of that, everybody gets to kind of chill. Like I'm, we do something historic and old and wonderful and so do you. Right. And, and it kind of, and let's just let it be that. When we get it, when you get up to the top level, you, and even like, you know, even the mid level, you find these people, they just don't have time For to bullshit. compete and hate each other. <laughs> because it's so hard doing what they do. But you know, but the difference is, and this is what I found so fascinating, is the difference between winemakers and sommeliers and diners and collectors is so vast they're miles apart from each other. And they all have totally different motives and they it's all have they different- They all need each other, but it's a, they're all like, they, they're, they're contributing in such different ways. Most, like if you look at sommeliers, they mostly visit winemakers. Mm -hmm. Some make wine, yeah. um, but mostly they visit. So they're like, they're like guests in this world. But in the restaurant, 
that's where they live. And so like that's their vineyard. And so they're very, <laughs> they're very like, they're, they have a much tougher grind in life than a winemaker has. A winemaker is a very stressful long term, whereas a sommelier is a very stressful short term. And so they have a very different mind state in my opinion. So you don't find a lot of Zen sommeliers. You don't find a lot that, you know, Phil Jackson, triangle offense kind of sommeliers. But you do find winemakers that are like that. And they kind of just put their hands and, you know, we try to manipulate God as much as we can, and God takes over. (laughs) Winemaking is a macro thing, and sommelier is like a micro, I need to make your meal great. Right, exactly. Yeah. And so, you know, so, but that was, that was, I think on the second film, though, there was a big change. Well, because I wanted to, here's the part from the filmmaking perspective that I'm really curious about in in a few different steps. At what point did you feel like you were really, that you had something very special on your hands? I started getting... How far into the process? Well, we, so I premiered the film without any distribution. I couldn't get it into a single film festival. No way. Some could not, I could not, I got rejected from Tribeca. Uh, Miami, uh, Los Angeles Film Festival, uh, Sydney, Australia. Uh, I got I got rejected from everybody. Nobody would take us. I could not. And you know, it's funny. I have conversations now later, like Peter Goldwyn, who's my distributor. He says, "Why didn't you play at Sundance? This thing would have taken down Sundance." I'm like, I couldn't get into a local high school film festival with this thing. I'm serious because, and it made no sense because I had a huge social media following at this point. I, I could not give this goddamn film away. So when it was picture locked and you're sending it around, how'd you feel about it? I thought it was great. I mean, I really, I thought it, I thought it felt like it had a real narrative arc. I mean, I thought the story was great. I mean, technically there's still issues I'd love to, uh, you know, I don't think anybody's truly happy with the film, but no, no. it also took place in a major technology change where things went from interlace to no interlacing anymore, so I had some serious. I shot with anything I could get my hands Sounds on. Sounds like a headache. Oh, God, it was a nightmare. But anyways, um, so I premiered it. I had the Napa Valley Film Festival, which is, especially then, it was their second year. I remember when they first started. Yeah, and they said, what are you going to do with this film? Now, they didn't know we got rejected from anybody, and I'm not going to tell them. They said, what are you going to do with this film? I said, I'm probably going to try to premiere it at Toronto. It just came out of my mouth. I don't even know how I said it. And they're like, well, would you consider premiering it at Napa? And I said, well, you know, it does. And I started thinking, I was like, it's a good thing. And I got back to them. I said, yeah, but we want to be the opening night film. And they, I mean, he was like, you know, The Descendants was our opening night film last year. You know, it was like the second showing. And like the Weinstein's all came out, and I'm like, well, you know, that's what we want to do. We want to be the opening night film. And so so then, well, yeah, I stuck to it, and they said, well, we need to see it. So I sent them a copy. You you were having that conversation with (laughs) (laughs) them? Because it was like, because it was like, I I didn't, I had nothing, I had nothing to lose. I had nothing to lose. I could not get some in anything. Were they talking to you about it just because they knew that it was about winemaking? Exactly. And they knew. That's so funny. And they wanted. That's so funny. They wanted sommeliers and winemakers in that culture because the first year. The wine community didn't really embrace the Napa Valley Film Festival. You know, there was no real, there was no wine themed, they had wineries pouring, but it wasn't a reason for like the wine community to come to the festival. And they wanted a wine film. And Sam was a wine film. So that's all they knew. And they'd seen, I cut right. a trailer and it kind of went viral oh, online. Oh, okay. So I did cut a trailer. I do remember that. I think that's how I finally, I first yeah. came, yeah. So I just cut a trailer in my spare bedroom kind of thing and when it went viral. I mean, it really did. It, it got covered by, you know, Huffington Post and the San Francisco Chronicle and all this craziness. That must have told you something. That I, but that's why I'm like, how in the hell did I not get into anything? But then I realize now film festivals are nothing like what I thought it's they were. It's because you need friends. There's no such thing There's as... There's no such thing as random submissions. I, I ask every human being, if anybody is listening to this, that would ever submit a film to a film festival, take that money, go to a bar, 
and order whatever the best bottle of wine you want to drink is for that amount of money. It's better money spent. Drink half of it on your head, pour half of it on your head, and drink the rest of it like as a shot. Because it is no reason to ever submit to a film festival. It is the dumbest thing you can possibly do. And I, I feel bad saying it, but it's true. It doesn't. I don't think anybody even watched my film. I don't think any film festival even watched well, it. Well, yeah, the problem is just that like 95%, if not more, of the slots are filled before submissions open. It was, uh, it's just not how it works. Right. Um, but that doesn't mean to say you shouldn't bust your ass to get into film festivals. You should just not do it that way. No, you just can't. Right? You can't upload it to without a box and like think that things are going to happen. Yeah, no. It doesn't happen. But the, uh, I mean, I'm sure in some cases it does. Maybe with shorts and stuff like that. I, I really don't know. I don't mean to be so negative. I just had a bad experience with it. So, But it's a telling one considering how successful it ended up being. Yeah. And I, in fact, I had distributors reach, start reaching out. Um, I don't want to name them, but they were big. And they would reach out and they would say, let me see the film. So then they would How'd see they it. How did they hear about it? Because of the viral trailer? Yes. And so because of this trailer, I think who there were two in particular that were very, I would say, very big distributors. Okay. Like, like dream distributors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they reached out and they said, um, can we see the film? And I said, sure. So I'd send them a copy. And I got a note back from this pers personal note from this executive. Okay. And, and a call. And they said, this film is fantastic. I said, so do you guys want to do it? And they're like, no. And I'm like, well, why not? They're like, because it's about a genre within a genre, within a genre. They're like, people can't even say the word sommelier. And I said, oh. And they said, but, but, somebody's going to get this so film, and I'm afraid I'm going to make a big mistake on this. They said that. So then I said, okay. And then another distributor reached what out. they're saying? Oh, and they said, I said, uh, this guy's a big wine guy. And who happens to be a good wine guy, also runs a distribution company and owns a th very prominent theater. The, uh, this guy said, this film is very good, but it won't, no one's going to come to the theater to see Somalia. It's just not going to film, not going to fill a theater. I said, okay. So I just kind of got the, I started realizing with this kind of like rejection that like people are not seeing what I know. I had a huge, for, especially at that time, because social media has changed a lot, but at that time, I was sitting with instantly 20,000 people would buy this movie. I mean, I was trying to explain to people, like, do you, do you, what kind of a seed that is in the ground is insane. Yeah. And so, but it wasn't, nothing, nothing was happening. So I premiered, so they said okay on the opening night film. They saw it, they said we love it, they had to jockey some things around. They said, fine, how many people do you think you could get to come see this? I said, I, again, this just came out of my mouth. I said, I don't know, 800? They said, you could fill an 800 person theater? I said, yeah, no question. So they said, okay, fine. They booked it in the Napa Valley Opera House, 500 seat theater, 550, and they- Were you sweating bullets? No, because this stuff comes out faster than I can process what I'm saying. So <clears throat> they, I mean, they were trying no, to- No, I mean, I mean like after the fact, like when you got off the phone, you were like, fuck, now I need to fill it. No, you know what I said? They have to, I, I demanded this in, I, I didn't really demand. I asked for an insane after party. I wanted like the opening night of the film festival party to be the SOM party. They said, okay. So they got huge sponsorship. We charged like a 50 to 100 bucks a ticket, maybe a 75 bucks a ticket, I don't remember, you to get, go and see this. Where'd you get like all this negotiating panache from? Oh, here's the thing. The film was so hard to make and I had nothing to lose. Yeah. And I knew it was kind of like I was making a you feel like all the car film and taking it to Detroit. I mean, yeah. It, well, yes. You feel like all the rejections were just making you more... Gave you more bravado because you were like, fuck it. I'm just, Absolutely. Yeah. They were, I mean, I felt so driven at this point. And I also felt like how fortuitous this was actually because if we did go to Sundance, we'd be a film. 
mm-hmm. amongst many. No, no, but now you're, but you're, now we're you're in the, the belly of the beast. We are the film in the middle of wine country. And the people who run the festival really, really, really went all out on, on doing an incredible party and incredible. So we did back-to-back 550 person sold out screenings. Two. No distribution. Wow. And it showed, I, I want to say six, five or six more times throughout the festival, lines around the block. I mean, How every feel, single How felt great. Feel? It was chaos. I didn't sleep for a week. And was there a lot of like rubbing shoulders and, and needing to be on the ball? Or? Yeah, I mean, I had a lot of situations where like, you know, the writer for The Hollywood Reporter is like, would come up to me at a party and go, what is this? Everyone's talking about Tom. Everybody's there. Most people, all the press was there because they wanted to go party. It wasn't like this wasn't Sundance. They didn't have this pressure. They were going to relax, drink wine, write some easy reviews. So the reviews started coming out from the opening night. The next morning, Huffington Post, Variety, bunch of, and they were great. I mean, they gave great reviews. I was like, yes. So then about a week later, maybe two weeks later, I get an email from Peter Goldwyn. And he says, what is this movie? And I told him, you know, we just premiered at Napa, blah, blah, blah. And that I had just accepted an invite to the Santa Barbara Film Festival. Because I knew wine country and blah, blah, blah. And they were, Santa Barbara just called me up and they said, we'd like to do the second showing of the film. And I said, sure. So, and that's really close and whatever. And I just had a baby. I mean, like, we literally just had a baby. My wife had our first child, like, right at this exact time. So it was chaos. And, uh... So, anyways, every time we make a wine film, my wife gets pregnant. I don't want to know if there's a coincidence on that one. But <laughs> so the uh, so, anyways, we um, premiered at, at at Santa Barbara, but right before that's where I announced that we had gotten distribution from Samuel Golden Films. And, but what Peter did, Peter came into me and he said, "Look, I, I he said I I know why this is a hard film for people to take because no one in my business knows how to sell it. It's a hard film." And well, he said, and there's no there's no example of like the American public being able to digest something about what goes on behind the wine industry. Yeah, and they, they, there's just no other example, so I could like understand their fear. Right. It was it, it was alone on an island in terms of subject matter. Absolutely, and you know distributors now I know how careful they are. They're yeah. so careful. They take no risks. I mean, they really don't. No. At least the ones in the very small indie world. You're not going to find a distributor who goes, here's 200 grand, go out and make that film about a piranha. You know, like, they're not, you know, or make that film about beetles or something crazy. They're just not going to do it. Yeah. Because the, in my world, you don't know when your film's going to end. You don't know when you're, I mean, it's like chaos. It could be a five-year, never-ending. Every, every movie I've made, I'm trying desperately to make a film that's over in less than two and a half years. I'm just, I'm like, I'm, I hand my hands and knees, like, looking over the sky going, I'm tempted to lock a bunch of people in a room and say, we're not leaving until we finish a film. Like, we're going <laughs> to shoot it and edit it in this room and no one can leave. Because it's like, I, I just can't figure out. Yeah. Especially in documentaries because you, you can't push time sometimes. No, It just no. happens. And things take time to just unfold. So, wh- But what Peter did, so yeah, I had I already... Yeah, I say, like, when did Netflix knock? All right, so I already looked at the Goldwyn, Samuel Goldwyn's model. Peter's father had done, um, Samuel Goldwyn Jr., had done a lot of religious films. Um, he did, like, Fireproof with uh, Kirk Cameron. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, Citizen Kane or anything here, but... But he took these films and they made like $50 million. You know, they made crazy money. And I had read somewhere that he was licensing the films to churches instead of just theaters. So churches could screen these films. And all I could think about is, here's what we need to do. We need to license some to bars, restaurants, 
country clubs, wineries, and do outdoor screenings. Do this, and instead of theaters, screw theaters. You can't drink at theaters. Yeah. This film is so much better if you have three glasses of wine through it. That's true. So I thought, and I went to Peter, and I said, let's do this. Peter said, well, what do you have in mind? I said, well, I've already got stuff booked for the Montage Hotel in Laguna Beach. And he's like, what? So I'd already I'd already all, had all these people that were willing to do these big ticket dinners. Because they're fun. It's fun. It's fun. And so Peter, what he did is he was smart enough that he... He listened to me, and I listened to him the best we could in our each other's worlds. Yeah. And he knew that, not because I'm like some pompous jerk or anything, but because I've been living in the world, I knew how to sell this thing best. Right. You know, there was just no way to. So I run all the social media. I do all this stuff. It was kind of like all hands on deck, and my crew's like four people, you know, three people. So it's not like there's a big. It was just me doing all this stuff, and so, you know, I partnered with him, and it was very successful. We listened to each other, and then, you know. I decided I had enough unfinished business to make a second film, and I did that. <laughs> and that film... Well, hold on, though, because the Netflix... Yeah. I, I wanna under, I, I'd love to know like, what that experience was like. Well, so Netflix came... Netflix reached out for a deal to Goldwyn, and it was... I, th I mean, I think a very good deal for a first film. It was more than my entire budget kind of thing. Yeah, way more. Paid, and, paid it back. Oh, yeah. Our big money came from iTunes, though. I mean, because the film exploded on iTunes. Cool. It really, really did. And it also came from, I mean, the film played very well in theaters, very well. Um, played in a lot of theaters and did very well there. And a lot of wineries, especially Behringer, did these pop-up wine bars at every theater. We only played theaters you could drink at. We tried to, at least. And they would do pop-up wine bars and give out free wine in the lobby. And I mean, it was really a cool experience. And um, so anyways, that the Netflix thing, I think the great part is Netflix is where the general public really started to see it. That, cause, yeah, because I mean, I, granted that maybe more money came from elsewhere and that you were playing in these theaters, but I think some yeah. became, at this point, if like, if anyone is drinking, if there's ever a conversation that I'm a part of about wine, someone brings up some. Right. Like it's coming to like the zeitgeist. Yeah, oh yeah. And like that's an unbelievable achievement. And I guess, you know, what was that experience like when you get to a place where you're like, I have, something that I've made has... I mean, for lack of a... It's entered the zeitgeist. That's crazy. Yeah, you know, it's weird. It kind of... We had already been living in a, a, the cultural relevance, like, with wine. I mean, so, like, any time we would go to a restaurant mm. or go to anything like that, I mean, whoever was the server or the, or the sommelier or the bartender, I mean, they... I, we started to get recognized, I will, I will say, within that world. Yeah. And it, it was very... Uh, yes, that was very surreal. And yeah. still is. I mean, because, I mean, three days ago, I had dinner in San Diego and the sommelier just, I mean, I felt like the way I would have been like, oh my God, it's like, there's David Fincher. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I mean, he was so, he was just so, I, I, it, it's very funny. You know, I was just sweaty and off work and, you know, from shooting. And like, it's just a funny thing for that to happen because it's not something you expect. And it's certainly something I don't, I don't know that I deserve, but but it's all, but it, it happens regardless. Yeah, and so yeah. yeah, for that to happen. But the crazy thing with Netflix is that now it's my mother-in-law's friend will tell her, "Have you seen Sam?" Yeah. You know what I mean? So like, or like, that's you know, what I mean. That though. kind of craziness, and they'll be like, "Wait a minute," or or they'll be in Greece, and they will have someone on a beach, a German guy on a beach, mm -hmm. tell them. You see oh, you some. like wine? You should watch some. And, and then he'll be like, no, but my, my son-in-law and daughter-in-law made, or my son-in-law and daughter made that film. You know, it's a very strange, that's a very strange process. You know, it's very cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
And that, at what point did you realize that you wanted to do the second one? I don't even know if I want to do the second one now. <laughs> I mean, we, I, we had a lot of unfinished business. I wanted very much to do something that was actually about what they were crazy about. So the first film is, it's really not about wine. I mean, there's, it's set in the world. There's a little bit of talk about wine. But for the most part, it doesn't get into any of the topics they're actually excited about. They were just crazy. So here's what they're crazy about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I really wanted to also be able to use them as experts now. Well, that's what I thought was so nice about watching the second one. I was like, well, this makes so much sense. You're, now you're, you're being able to leverage the success of the first one to make maybe what you really wanted to make all along kind of thing. Yeah, and I think there's definitely truth to that. I wanted very much to make something, yes, about history and about winemaking and about, mm -hmm. because I do, I do think, you know, and again, we use the sommeliers as kind of a Trojan horse into the topic. I mean, the second film is definitely not about sommeliers, though there's a chapter about them in there. I think it's, uh, it allowed me, but I mean, again, with that film, it's such a daunting topic. It was a big question of how the hell are we going to structure all these topics into one film? And luckily, we could at least say it's all about wine. Yeah, yeah, Or yeah. there are topics and stories within wine. And we tried to find human stories within these topics that we could do. It was a very difficult process making that film, though. It was yeah. really, really, really tough. But, you know, it's, uh, oof, man. Now, now that it's done, I mean, you're, you have other documentary projects that you're trying to do. Yeah. Um, are you finding that there's just more accessibility to these things because of this success? Like, are you trying to like maximize just like keeping it going? Like what's the, what's your, your view on all that? Well, I mean, I, I find nothing has really changed. I'm just still trying to raise money constantly for all sorts of projects. Yeah. I still want to make these things that I want to make. Like I'm making a film about a famous performer and then I'm making a film about oysters and sea urchin divers, you know, next. So, I mean, they're not, I basically anytime I hear, well, that's not very commercial. You know, I'll hear like that doesn't sound very commercial. And I say that's the same thing you said to me about Sam. And you know what I hear all the time? No, I didn't. I said Sam was going to be great. You know, but nobody the memory is like nobody has the memory like the filmmakers. It's a good lesson you learned, even though they yeah. didn't learn it. You just learned not to listen to them. No, but I mean, yeah, exactly, right. And so you know, my my thing is, I it's definitely easier to go to somebody and say. I need a hundred grand or I need this or I need access to this or I want to do this. And they know I made some for them to go, okay, it's way easier. Yeah, I yeah, mean, yeah. it's all of a sudden it's, I hope so. Yeah, exactly. Like I, I built my first, you know, my first skateboard. So now people are going to let me build more skateboards. Yeah. But prior to that, I had no access. The one thing is I'm kind of known as like the, a wine filmmaker now. So I'm looking forward to getting the second or my third film out, which has nothing to do with wine. Yeah, you. it's hard to you get every like the pigeonholing is everywhere. Yeah, um, was doing this other film, um, this new one, was there something? You're talking into the bottle, the second Simon. No, 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 the one that you're working on now. Right. I mean, are those were you actively trying to get away from from wine for the purpose of not like no. getting? No. No. In fact, this film, and. Uh, my fact checker wife would probably fact check me on this, but I, I want to say around the same time we've made, we've been making this next film, Rosemary, for as long, I mean, three years mm -hmm. or so we've been working on it. And so, no, that film is just a phenomenal story my wife and I found that we would have made. I mean, I honestly thought it was going to be done before some too. 
Now, again, for time reasons and financial reasons and a number of other ones, mostly time though, yeah. it's, it couldn't have been. It could yeah. never, I mean, I've now gotten myself into this world the same way I got myself into the world with Sam, where I have access to things that are insane. I mean, we've interviewed Tim Conway and Carl Reiner and Dick Van Dyke and you know, all these immensely you know, legends that are not very accessible. You know? No, no, no. And so we've interviewed so many different people you now for this film. Some success has given you that access? I think so, yeah, sure. Cool. I do, absolutely, because I mean, even the people, the, That's pe great. the people who have given me access have either seen it, heard of it, or asked someone, and they went, oh yeah. So I mean, it certainly helps. Well, yeah, no, the credibility at that point, it's just, it's just totally there. Yeah. And I guess like last topic, because we were talking about it on the phone the other day when we were trying to set this up about that you're just strictly trying to do film over digital. Yeah. From a documentary standpoint, I would assume that that makes it harder, but maybe I'm wrong. How do you feel? Well, I mean, I think this could, I'll try to keep this a simple t answer here. Okay. I mean, I've, I've shot a lot. I will say I, I shot way, 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 way too much on my second film. And you think because it was digital, you yeah, just I do. rolled? Absolutely. And there's this mentality of, I feel like per minute filming has gone so far down in value in the last 10 years that it's like, oh, just get it in case we need it. Oh, just get it. Just get it in case we need it. We might as well, we're here. We should get it. Get him, ask him this question because we're here. We don't know. And I, I, I'm done with that. I'm done with that shit. I'm I, that, that made my experience on Psalm 2 awful. I really do understand that. Because then you just, it makes it harder in so many ways. So many ways, but you have so much more storage choices. to manage. You have so much choices. data. And it takes away what you are as a filmmaker and your greatest responsibility. It would be like, it, to me, and I know this is like a strange analogy, but it would be like, it's time for your kid to go to school. You're like, well, you know, let's, uh, let's just send him to this school today and this school another day. And, you know, let's, you know, I don't know, maybe we'll try band practice this week and then they can try ballerina school. You know what I mean? It's like, it's, that problem with it is you're never saying, I'm gonna make a decision for what's best for the yeah. thing I care this much when about. When you're burning real film, you need to make that decision in that moment. Yeah, and Saving all those things to post in documentaries so gives you another year of post. You know what you don't, and I'm only speaking as a workflow here and a discipline, I happen to be somebody who is very um, ADD, yeah. very crazy with my ideas come faster than I can implement them, mm. and my, my ambition often moves faster than my hands can, can actually put pen to paper. And so because of that, from a workflow, when shooting film, yeah. I don't do that. I sit down with my DP, we maybe not storyboard, but we plan what we're gonna shoot. Yeah. I say, look, if I'm gonna get somebody, normally what I'll do with digital, I'll say, yeah, it'll be a quick interview, and then I just wreck their day. You know, I spend like six hours shooting with them, and I totally lied. I'm like, I said I'd be there an hour, and I shoot for like six hours, and we get everything, and, but you know what I do with film? I say, I'm gonna need you for five hours, and I spend five hours and then we leave. It's a different mentality from a workflow where I'm a better director, I have a, have a better, and I also, I mean, we can speak technically about film, I think it looks better, I really oh, do. Yeah. I also think we are living in a time, I, and I say this because I'm going through 89 years of material that my subject for my next film has shot on eight millimeter film, and still photos, and just insanity that this stuff was ever captured, and let alone exists, and I think we are living in a time right now where if I wanted to make a film about somebody right now who is 16, who's gonna be as famous as this person that I'm making the film about, it would be impossible. Because no one's gonna have access to their iCloud photos 
and their emails are going to go away, and there's, there's, there's no photo albums anymore. It's gone. And I'm not trying to be a Luddite with physical media. I'm trying to say that if I wanted these materials, they're going to be gone. This is an ephemeral world, and I can go and scan these film prints, and the scanners that exist now compared to two years ago are a thousand times better. It's unbelievable how much better the scanning technology is getting for film. Mm. And so I just, I, you know, there, there's so much latitude in it. The film stocks are fantastic. I just think, you know, the Rosemary film, we are shooting mostly on film. There are some digital interviews that I shot on the Sony F55, which is a great camera. Um, we shot those when it was a camera that I had. I just had it, so we shot everything we could because these people are old and we need to get them on camera. Yeah. And uh, the next film, I'm shooting everything in the wild on film. So on Oof. boats, in... Yeah, on boats, um, outdoors, in the, you know, the adventure stuff, all on film. Because I don't need that much. Yeah. And I fancy myself a pretty resourceful editor, mm -hmm. and I will find a way to make what we've shot work. I don't want a lot of it. Yeah. I, want, I want it planned, and I want it to look right. Anything we shoot in restaurants will be digital. It will look clean, and it's a different world than where the food comes from. So the food where it's being acquired is going to look gritty, shoot it on a super 16 millimeter, it's gonna look. It's gonna look how it should. That's interesting. Combat that's a, that's footage. That's a fun way of, of, of mixed format. Yeah, it's gonna be combat footage, and the restaurants are this world that everyone's completely disconnected. You Plain sit there and, and yeah, you eat this uni on a plate, and it's perfectly organized, and it, yeah. and the person who put it on the plate has no freaking idea that the guy who got it knows someone who got eaten by a great white shark. They just don't know, and it's uh, that's why this film's gonna be fucking great. <laughs> <laughs> so, anyways, though. Um, so, but that's my mentality, and I, I, I truly believe it's, it's equal parts film forces me into a discipline, yeah. and I learned on film, and you think, how does my shot start and end? Yeah. Somebody walks in, I rack focus here, I pull the camera back, and then we call cut. Instead of, did we get it? Um, I don't know, keep rolling. And it's, just, it's just a terrible way to learn. And also, you look at, you look at these DSLRs. And you look at they came out and then all of a sudden everybody wanted the shallow depth of field stuff. But the problem with the DSLR, if you never learned on film and you never learned on measuring your shots, you never learned on racking focus, it just equals a whole bunch of garbage material. People who can shoot until their heart's content with no discipline on how to shoot this thing that is completely not a video camera, it's just not. I mean, they're not, they're more akin to the way a film camera shoots in that you have to rack focus to a point and the depth of field is so shallow and this and that. So you get a bunch of garbage out there. Now people can shoot amazing stuff on DSLRs, and I've shot plenty of stuff myself. But no, no, I hear. I, I know. If you learned on yeah, video, you just you shoot it like video, and you shouldn't be. Preach it. Yeah, yeah. So that's my personal. Yeah. No, no, no. I hear it, and I, I think that that's an exciting thing to hear from someone who's like making and it's docs not, with it. And it's not that expensive. I mean, the other thing is people think film is expensive, and you know why? Because film has created the biggest sin that exists, in that they have lost control of their own workflow. So Kodak is now finally, I think the Kodak bankruptcy is one of the greatest things that's ever happened to film. And I know Jeff Clark, who's a CEO, who I know would probably not like to hear this, but now they have a chance to start over and consolidate. They can have the processing labs. They can own the film production. They can figure out, here's who's going to tell us any, here's who's going to scan. And it takes it down from 90 different steps to two. And all of a sudden, now you can say, if I wanted to shoot film, Here's per minute, here's where I'm gonna get it. I send the film here, I get this. You, it's, it's streamlining now. Yeah, Finally, yeah. after 70 years of chaos, who's the cheapest processing? Who's the this, who's the this? Now it's gonna streamline and you can say, it's not, it, 
doing color correction on film is I, I implore everybody to sit through color correction on film and do it on digital. Just do it once and you will never ever want to shoot digital again. You shoot raw digital footage and it is so time consuming. You shoot film and it is the fastest thing in the world. There's so much latitude. Most digital still today. If you film somebody lighting like let's say a torch or they're shining like a lantern right in the camera, it's a hole in the screen. Yeah. Digital looks like a hole in the screen whereas film has this beautiful, especially if you shoot it properly and you transfer it properly or whatever you're going to do, it has this beautiful change from white highlights into the image. It really has this a totally different way of looking and I, I, I can't speak highly enough about it. I mean, you see this camera here. I mean, obviously, this is an audio podcast. This is my wife's great-grandfather's camera. They use this in combat in World War II. You use it? Yeah, we're shooting that entire box of 100-foot rolls of film down there is going through this camera. And we're shooting it through these lenses, and it's going to look it's going to look great. So you can never do... I mean, try pulling out a, an HDV camera and shooting on it. No, I mean, no, it's, no, no, yeah. no, It's impossible. This was made in 1937. And they shot war photography on this thing. And all the great World War II footage you've ever seen, especially the color stuff, was shot on this Kodak Cine Special camera. That's so cool. And it shoots every frame rate. I mean, this thing does every bell and whistle you could possibly need. But yet, all it is is a box that turns something with a hole in it. And that's what a camera is supposed to be. I'm sick and tired of going through 50,000 menus to shoot something. I don't have to do that with this. I just shoot. And then I process it. And as long as I'm not a yokel on set, yeah. there's an image. Yeah. It's not rocket science. I mean, it's everybody needs what's in the viewfinder. Let's light to a viewfinder is so preposterous. It, anyways. No. I'm, I'm never leaving digital. It's not like I can't shoot digital. But I just think that it's, if I hear this camera looks so close to film, again, I'm going to puke. Because it's like, make a camera that looks like what it, that camera is. You know? I mean, don't. People are trying to emulate film when film still wins. I mean, <laughs> in resolution, this like 6, 8, 12K bullshit, I'm so tired of it because there's no texture to it. I shoot this and I scan it at 4K on this 16 millimeter, and is it 4K? No, it's not. It's film scanned at 4K, and it looks completely different, and there's no way it's going to look like a 4K image coming off an F55. But it, yeah, sure, it's 4K. I mean, it's like the whole conversation is so, it's just preposterous. I'm. It makes no sense. I mean, it, well, I mean, it's, like I said, it's, it's cool that you're figuring out how to do it in documentary situations. And it sounds like it's also making your documentary work more um, sharp. And organized. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, to, to just to move into like, the, final, the final aspects, how are you, what are the goals now compared to what you said they were earlier in terms of, like, is, is scripted stuff still? Absolutely, yeah. I have, a, I have a screenplay that I wrote, God, I wrote the f first draft of it maybe nine years ago. Mm -hmm. And then I've revisited it constantly. It's, I think it's still hands down the greatest story I've ever, I've ever, I've ever had. And it happens to have come from me. It's, it's, I'm, I just, it's, I'm kind of scared by how good I think it is. And that will be, I'm hoping, two and a half films from now. So I'll start trying to make that. But... That's my goal. The other big goal is to stop undervaluing myself. Because what I, keep, what I keep doing is I keep, someone will come along and say, here's this much money. And I say, yes, because I just want to make the film so bad that I don't pay myself. And now I'm starting to get to a point where I look in the mirror and I realize, all right, I might not be the greatest filmmaker, but there is nobody 
that this person offering me money knows that can make it better. Right. You know, there's nobody that, you know, it's kind of a, it's a situation where it's like I am sick and tired of not getting paid for making films yeah. when I'm not asking for much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And really, when you look at there being another 50 grand in a budget or something like that, I don't want to work with people who say, that money's going to go to you? No, I'm not going to put 50 grand more. I'm tired of that. So I'm done. Psalm 1 and 2, I want to be the last films I make where I don't get paid to make them. Cool. That's my goal. So I'm tired of, I have a family now. No, those, and, are, uh, those are good goals. Yeah. Getting paid and for I what think, I And I think highly attainable considering what you've been able to do without that. Well, I've realized that I just, I'm not somebody who's able to compromise very easily. Mm. And I guess that means I'm a total pain in the ass. But at the same time... I can use that to my advantage and make good films, or try to. Yeah. So I might as well try to make a minimum wage. While well, I maybe this slides into like the last question that. I've and that doesn't studying. mean I haven't made money off, off no, films. No, I get it. You just you only make them a year and a half later when they, or two years later when they actually generate some revenue. You're, and not, that's, you're not making the money from the production itself, which right. should at least pay for time. Right. So I'm taking all the risk and yeah, yeah, yeah. making the film, and you know. Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. Not how business works. No, it shouldn't. <laughs> no. Um, I mean, this slides right into the last question that I've been finding myself asking a lot um, in the past couple episodes is how are you ha defining success for yourself now? I don't know. I don't know. I, um, I think it comes with happiness, to be mm -hmm. honest with you. Originally it was, God, I can't believe I'm making a film. Films for me have been a lot like sex. The first time you have it, you're like, I cannot believe this is happening. This is amazing. I hope I ever get to do this again. And I then, love it. But it's true, but then no, you have, so then you have sex again, and you're like, oh, it's still awesome. Man, I might get to do this a lot more times. And then, <laughs> and then you're having sex constantly, and you're kind of like, all right, I'm going to try to get better at this because I realize I'm going to have sex more and more. So that's kind of the way the film thing with me is right now is I love I'm it. realizing I get to make more films now Let's not make them shitty and let's get better at them yeah. so that the person I'm having sex with enjoys it. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> well, it's funny because I was having a conversation last night where I was like, you know, because I'm coming off like a four-week bender of traveling and doing like four projects and like I feel the benefits of it. And then like, you know, there's nothing, nothing substitutes repetition. Exactly. Nothing. Especially in like a craft game. Yeah. It's like we can sit here and theorize about what we're going to do on our next home, but like you just need to make your next one. And that's why I've been trying so hard not to leave the I'm a feature film director mind state because the moment you go, okay, I'll take this commercial. God, it pays so much money. But the moment you do that, then all of a sudden you make another one and you make another one and you make another one. It's really hard to then go, then you were just a guy who made a couple documentaries and now you direct. You know what I'm saying? I'm trying hard to, to not step out of this world and try to find a way to make this world work. Mm. Trying so hard. And I, I truly believe... It's working, I think. We'll see. I think so. I think. So, yeah. I don't I know. know. I don't know. Well, it's been great to finally hang out and hear how you uh, got to this place. Yeah. I appreciate it a lot. Hey, it's a huge honor. I appreciate it. Nice to meet you.